Join Dr. Sarah Howard and her guests as they dive into the world of integrative veterinary medicine on the new Pure Animal podcast. Dr. Howard interviews practitioners, researchers, and industry professionals at the forefront of their fields with the aim of advancing pet well-being. Search for Pure Animal in your favourite podcast app. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Francesca Eldridge, who's a registered clinical nutritionist and OCD survivor. She's based in New Plymouth, New Zealand. She has a special interest in offering knowledgeable support for OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorders, all types of depression and trauma recovery. She also offers informed support for hyperhidrosis, Francesca is motivated to help increase understanding amongst natural health practitioners of what OCD actually is and how we can best support our clients and believes that holistic support for mental health conditions offers the best chance of successful management and recovery. Francesca is launching her first online course for people living with anxiety disorders called The Gateway to Anxiety Recovery. The course launches in June 2018. You can find more out about that on her website called francescaeldridgehealth.com. Welcome, Francesca, to FX Medicine. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Um, I'm, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> you're, a, I'm just, you're good. You're recovering. <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting over a cold. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I'm quite happy. I'm actually sitting um, in a pool of sunlight, and I've also got the fire on. Oh, um, because we've, yeah, we've sort of just come into winter proper here in New Zealand. I was just going to say that, New Plymouth. Can you explain to our listeners where New Plymouth is in New Zealand, please? Sure. So New Plymouth is um, the main uh, city in the Taranaki region on the west coast of the North Island. And if you were to travel there um, from Auckland, which I, I think most people are familiar with, our big city in the north, um, you would you would take you about an hour by plane to get from Auckland to New Plymouth, oh. um, and then we've also got a beautiful um, volcanic mountain that sits um, sort of right in the middle um, of that Taranaki Bight landmass. So we're very lucky here in that we've got a, a two and a half thousand meter uh, mountain, wow. um, and then we've got and then that's surrounded by native bush, and then we're surrounded by um, beautiful coastline. So it's it's a very beautiful and underrated part of New Zealand and because it's it's not particularly on the way to any other major tourist attractions, it doesn't get visited as much as it should. Um, but people who come here do tend to fall in love with it. And tell us a little bit about your career. What started you to become a clinical nutritionist? And then I guess we need to branch into your experience of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Sure, yeah. So, um, well, to be honest, I, you know, I would still consider myself a, a relatively new graduate. Um, I graduated just over a year ago. Um, so I, I completed my diploma in nutritional science uh, with the Naturopathic College of New Zealand. Um, that was I completed that over part time over five years. So it was quite a, 
a long haul of study, um, and it was it was a big relief to graduate. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. But my journey towards wanting to support people with OCD actually began before that. Um, so when I was ten years old, um, I developed um, symptoms uh, in myself of OCD. And um, looking back, it was mostly checking symptoms. Um, not that I, not that I think the label is particularly important, but that, that's how it began. And for me, it it became severe. It sort of almost overnight, um, my symptoms, you know, sort of ramped up a thousandfold. And around age fourteen, um, OCD basically took over, you know, my brain and my life. And so everything from schooling to um, relationships, um, friendships, you know, social life, study, um, day-to-day living was severely affected. And uh, I, you know, to be, I will be completely honest and say I wasn't um, in a situation where I was being supported. So that, of course, made things um, a thousand times harder. And... It was a pretty, pretty dark time um, mm. in my life. You know, I have a lot of empathy for teenagers who are struggling with mental health because I've been there. Um, and, yeah, I really hit rock bottom. And I, the thing that sort of got me through it, and I know this, you know, probably sounds a little bit corny, but I just had this gut feeling that things would get better and that there was something um, ahead of me in the future. You know, there was something good ahead of me and I just had to hold on so yeah I had a pretty traumatic time through my teenage years and as I sort of got towards the end of my teenage years and came into my early 20s uh, my symptoms really reduced Um, and with hindsight I can see that that was possibly influenced by um, environmental changes, um, dietary factors. Um, for example, I stopped drinking Coca-Cola every day. That probably helped. Ah. All, that, all that caffeine and refined sugar and yeah. the effects on um, endocrine function and nervous function. Um, and I also probably just began, um, in some ways, eating better and in some ways not. I'd become a vegetarian at that point in my life. Um, so I was probably getting a lot more veggies, but I was also getting a lot less fat and protein. And for me, um, OCD just, it just ebbed and flowed through my 20s. And I guess what I was hoping was that it would just go away, that <clears throat> that I would outgrow it. Um, and I suppose because it ebbed and flowed, you know, every time it ebbed, you think, oh, great, you know, it, it is going away. Um, but it would always come back. And when I got to my late 20s, you know, I, I was forced to... Um, acknowledge to myself this isn't going away. It not only keeps coming back, but it's getting worse. Um, I was having my my second rock bottom moment. Um, I'd got to the point where I was struggling to leave my house. Um, it was having uh, that illness was having a huge impact um, on my marriage. Uh, my poor ex husband was suffering a lot, and. Um, yeah, I just didn't really have much in the way of a social life. Mm. And, you know, I just, I I knew that I had talents and gifts to bring to my life, but I wasn't able to live them because um, OCD was just holding me back in so many ways. And, and at that point, I also had a lot of 
stuff going on with my physical health as well, um, including, you know, things that you just wouldn't expect to be dealing with at the age of 29. You know, I had urge incontinence. Um, migraines were regular things for me. Um, my PMS, you know, kind of had me on the couch at least one day a month. Um, I had acne all through my 20s, even though I hadn't had it in my teenage years. Um, I was bloated all the time. Um, I basically never slept <laughs> pretty uh. much throughout my teenage years and my 20s. I, I didn't get a lot of sleep. Um, and, you know, my, it was at that point where I I could be, I mean, hysterical is really the only word I can think of to describe it. You know, OCD sort of drove me to hysteria on a daily basis. And it was around age 29. Um, after an honest conversation with my uh, my now ex-husband and, and an honest conversation with myself that I realised, you know, I can't go on like this. Yeah. Um, I want to live. <laughs> I want to get better. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is I've just had enough. Um, and so that's when I started looking into my options. And I've, I'd always had a respect for natural medicine. I didn't know a lot about it, but um, I had a lot of respect for it. And... My father had died when I was quite young from cancer and the experience of watching what he went through had sort of put me off um, uh, Western, you know, the medical model yeah. life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so many aspects of it, the way my father was treated in the hospital, the lack of empathy, um, you know, just so many aspects of it. And uh, I think kind of partly from my father's death is where I... I just found more respect for natural medicine and, and I'd only ever had positive experiences with natural health professionals. And, and this is not to say that I'm, you know, completely um, against, um, you know, the medical model. Um, I'm not. I think that we should be friends and work together, but this is just how uh, how it was for me back then. And so when I, when I started looking for help, um, I knew that I didn't want to take medication. I wasn't convinced that that was the way forward for me. And so I kind of knew that my my option at that stage was therapy or something else, but I didn't know what that something else was. And um, thank heavens for the internet, I found a naturopath um, in the United States, hmm. uh, Mary Reed, and uh, I got in touch with her. And, yeah, she um, specializes in supporting people with OCD, and uh, I ended up, um, working with her over the internet and over the phone for about 18 months. Um, I, I still keep in touch with her to this day, although I'm, you know, no longer um, seeing her as a client. But uh, yeah, she is. She got me started um, not only on the path to um, getting my life back and improving my mental and, and physical health, and ultimately achieving about 90% reduction in um, my OCD symptoms, wow. but she also ignited helped ignite in me a passion for natural medicine and um you know she did a lot of webinars and classes and things and so I, I started going to all her webinars and I started learning and taking notes and then I decided I, I want to become a natural health professional and I want to help people with OCD. So that um that feeling of wanting to uh, become a nutritionist and um support people with mental health conditions, um particularly anxiety disorders that probably was born around, I guess, around 2011, and it was towards the end of 2012 that I began my um, prerequisite studies um, formally in anatomy and physiology before I then moved into the diploma in nutrition science. I'm so glad that you had this 
burning light inside you. You had, you could see the light. And I want to talk about that later, about how you help yeah, others sure. that maybe can't. Just first, can, can we take our listeners through what is and what isn't OCD? You know, with anxiety disorders, I think it's, you know, whether we're talking about um, OCD or generalised anxiety or social anxiety, I think what's really important um, to understand as health practitioners is that, you know, there is a difference between um, normal, everyday, um, you know, worries, concerns, anxieties, um, and even, you know, intrusive thoughts. There's a difference between that and when it becomes something that's actually hampering your ability to function and it's affecting your your quality of life um, and your you know your professional functioning and your social functioning and, and how you show up in your relationships. So, <clears throat> um, I mean, gosh, we could we could spend a long time talking about what exactly OCD is. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll try to sort of um, put it into a, a nutshell, as it were. So. It is an anxiety disorder, um, and there are many anxiety disorders, and obsessive-compulsive disorder um, is characterized by persistent, uh, that's probably quite a key word, persistent, intrusive, unwanted thoughts, um, which create a level of anxiety um, for the person experiencing them, um, which drives that person to typically carry out some form of um, mental or physical ritual to quell that anxiety. And um, unfortunately, carrying out that ritual, this is the compulsion to quell the anxiety, it's only ever temporary. So the, the intrusive thoughts always come back and the anxiety ramps up again. And so you end up caught in this vicious cycle of um, obsessive thoughts and compulsions to try and quell the anxiety. But it's it, it, they always come back. You, um, and in some ways, um, a psychologist will say that you're actually feeding the OCD <laughs> by by carrying out those compulsions. Um, there's a there's a saying because it works, right? Well, because you're you're not changing, I guess, your neural pathways. You're not changing your cognitive, um, you know, reasoning or functioning uh, around these persistent um, intrusive yeah. thoughts. Yeah. And fears, and and I guess what's really important to understand for um, you know whether you're a health practitioner or whether you're supporting you know someone you love you know who's affected by OCD, um, whether you're a teacher who's trying to help a student, whatever the situation is, it's really important to understand that for the person affected by obsessive compulsive disorder, the thoughts are very real, the anxiety is very real, the fear is very real. Um, so it's not something that they can just let go of or stop thinking about or snap out of because, trust me, if we could, we would. <laughs> um, but it's you know, far it's, more than being just a neat freak, correct? It's far more than just um, a place for everything and everything in its place. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So there's actually um, what we call OCD themes. And unfortunately... The idea of the person with OCD liking everything clean and neat has somehow become one of the most well-known themes, OCD themes in popular culture. And so we have memes all over the internet and social media, you know, like there's that common one um, 
when you have a party, you know, invite someone with OCD over because they'll be sure to start cleaning. You know, there's a lot of really offensive, right. um, misinformed jokes like that that yep. circulate online and that actually cause, you know, quite a lot of emotional um, distress and a feeling of being um, unseen and, you know, uh, and a feeling of not receiving compassion for people who are actually affected by OCD. And so one thing that I, I usually do when I talk to people about OCD to help um, increase understanding is I tell them, you know, there's so many different themes. And yes, for some people, you know, their OCD does take the form of intrusive, um, you know, scary thoughts around um, perhaps, you know, infection, germs, disease, lack of cleanliness, um, contamination, and that can be psychological contamination as well. You know, that sometimes you a person affected by OCD might not actually be able to tell you um, what it is that makes something feel dirty, but mm. at a certain you know place or a certain object yeah. then just feels unclean and therefore scary. Um, and then, of course, the compulsion results to try and get rid of that feeling. Um, so it's not necessarily about thinking they're going to get AIDS or they're going to catch a disease. It could just be just an intangible feeling that something's unclean. Yeah. So that is, that is a real OCD theme. Um, it's a fairly common one, but it's not the only one. And I know from conversations and, and support groups that I'm in that it, it causes a huge amount of frustration among people affected by OCD that um, everybody thinks it's about being clean and neat. Um, so I'll just quickly talk about um, some of the other OCD things. So this won't be comprehensive, but um, there is um, harm OCD. That's a very common one. So harm OCD is where um, the sufferer typically will have intrusive thoughts that harm is going to come to people who they love um, or that they themselves are going to cause harm to other people. So uh, a classic example of this could be um, hit and run uh, harm OCD. And this could be where the sufferer has persistent, um, possibly violent, graphic, disturbing mental images, thinking that, you know, when I drove to the supermarket, I'm sure I hit someone, I, I ran someone over. And so what could happen in, in, in that OCD theme is that the, the person suffering from OCD will spend an hour driving, you know, retracing their route, driving around, um, looking for the body of this person that oh, um, wow. their brain is telling them, yeah, that you hit someone. That's not mm. just a, a checking behaviour. Mm -hmm. Like, is that more of a psychotic behaviour? Is that more of a psychosis? Yeah, like, there's definitely an element of delusion there. Delusion, um, yeah. And, and I suppose, I guess I'm quite familiar with all the OCD themes and I, over the years I've spoken to so many people with OCD yeah. so I'm kind of used to it all by now. But um, I suppose I, yeah, I give these examples because I I want to really help illustrate for people who um, are wanting to learn more about OCD just how invasive um, this illness is, you know, how it literally takes over your mind. Yeah. And it's, it's the things that it's, that are happening in your brain are very irrational. And the thing is, and this is perhaps one of the coolest aspects of the disease, OCD sufferers know at some deep level that it's irrational. You know, we know deep down that, um, deep down we know, you know, I didn't run somebody over in my car. Um, deep down we know my family's not going to die if I don't carry out this complex ritual. But it's the anxiety that colours everything. Yeah. Um, and makes it impossible to just sort of push that thought away. So, 
Yeah, it's um, my own naturopath described OCD as a, as a condition that makes you a slave to what you think and feel. And to date, that is the best description um, that I've ever heard of OCD. So yeah, so you have people. I mean, other examples of harm OCD are um, a true life story: a little girl in the UK. She was convinced that her mother would die uh, if she didn't harm herself. But oh, to keep mum alive, she had to she cut had herself, for example. Oh, yeah, now can you can imagine how heartbreaking that was for parents. Um, other OCD themes there is, and this, I think this is a really important one to talk about because um, it, it would be great to get a lot more understanding around this. Um, there's P OCD, which stands for pedophilia OCD. So this is where the person affected um, has persistent intrusive thoughts that um, I'm a pedophile um, if I pick up my child and hug them what if I have a sexual response what if I go to the playground and I'm and I'm watching the children and and, and oh my god one of the kids has kicked the soccer ball over here what what if I hand you know the ball back to that child and and and, and they might start having like you know graphic unwanted um mental images of things that they don't actually want to do. Um, you know, the, the thing to, to realize with OCD is the person who has fears of being a pedophile is not a pedophile. The person who has fears of um, harming others doesn't have a, a harming bone in their body. This is the really cool thing about OCD is it sort of um, it causes you to doubt yourself. I yeah. think um, so if we go back to the 1800s and through the back, it was actually called the doubting disease. So it's like a really savage um, self-doubt. And so, yeah, so the OCD sufferer creates these um, mental and physical rituals to to quell these anxieties. And, you know, the, the rituals could be, um, it could be cleaning. It could be that you have to um, mentally recite certain words or count certain things or, you know, carry out certain, you know, physical um, sort of ritual activities. Um, you know, some people might, think that they have to count in a certain way and it will stop your family from dying. Um, wow. And typically what happens if you're if you're interrupted in any way while you're performing a ritual, then you have to go back to the beginning and start all over again. It has to be perfect. It has to feel right. And so, you know, people can end up spending hours, literally hours of their daily life um, on these rituals, trying to make the anxiety go away, trying to stop their families from dying, um, trying to you know, quell these fears that, that they're a pedophile. Um, and it's, yeah, so it really takes over people's lives. And it's, um, with with the knowledge that I have now and the hindsight that I have, it, to me it seems like it's almost an illness of self-hatred um, because people with OCD are incredibly hard on themselves and there's a lot of hyper-responsibility going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're responsible for everything. Yeah. <laughs> I remember well, the first time I actually sat in a psychologist's office and spoke with him about it. I, you know, I remember I sort of quite innocently said to him, "Is it true that, you know, us people with OCD, we're 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 quite hyper responsible?" And uh, without missing a beat, he said, "Very." <laughs> <laughs> Worsting from age ten to fourteen in your formative teenage years, that must have been so hard on you. Um, uh, it was hell. Like hell is the word I use to describe it because it was, and I, I actually felt like I was living in hell <laughs> at yeah. the time. And you know, and I was hiding it from everybody around me. And and this is the other really sad thing about OCD um, that I think is again really important for 
um, health practitioners, um, you know, in, in all disciplines, and, um, you know, friends, family, teachers, and, and, you know, loved ones with people who have OCD. It's, it's crucial to understand that um, people affected by OCD, we carry a huge amount of shame because... You know, if you're walking around thinking, oh, other people are contaminating me, um, or, oh my God, I might be a pedophile, or, oh my God, I think that if I'm around knives, I'm going to pick one up and stab somebody, it's not easy to tell someone that you're having those thoughts because, you know, they're going to think you're crazy. Yeah, <laughs> or, right. or at least this is probably what we tell ourselves people are going to think I'm crazy, I'm going to get locked up. I mean, there have been real life. Um, cases where someone affected by pedophilia OCD has disclosed this to an employer or in a job interview, you know, doing the right thing, being honest, um, you know, maybe letting their employer know that they're that they're getting treatment, and have then been, you know, fired from their job, um, and it had been go had to go and you know fight from a human rights perspective. Yeah. And um, I'm I'm happy to say that the, the one case that I know of, um, the woman actually won her case, I'm very happy to say that, but I'm sure there's others who haven't, and I'm sure there's others who didn't have the strength to fight, and yeah, so, so there's a lot of shame that goes with this illness, and that, I think, is is one of the biggest barriers, because we know from, um, I think it's World Health Organization uh, data, that the typical OCD sufferer waits 10 years yeah. before they first seek help, yeah. and I waited... I mean, I lived with OCD for 15 years before I told another person I had it, and I lived with it for 19 years before I decided it was time to get help. Um, so uh, I'm in I'm in my late 30s now, and yeah, pretty much from sort of age 10 to 30, my life was kind of dominated uh, mm. by um, it wasn't kind of dominated; it was dominated. Um, by this anxiety disorder, OCD, yeah. and I think when you've kind of lived in shame and silence for so long, um, I suppose I've I've kind of now gone the opposite way, and I I don't shut up about OCD. Well, yeah, but I'm I've got to say I'm so glad that you saw that light because you're now offering hope to others. So um, I just want to go on. We've spoken a little bit about what it is, and, and I will ask for some resources at the end because I think it's r critically important that practitioners read up about this. They need to upskill. Yes, yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think it's not covered in, um, by a lot of colleges or it's, it's maybe only touched on very briefly. I suppose, well, yeah, maybe something that I'd like to touch on here is we, because I think this is um, important to understand, especially for a, a shared care approach and, and getting the best for um, clients, there is some evidence that um, there is often a role, that childhood trauma often plays a role um, in the development of, of OCD and mental health problems in general. Yes. Um, so... You know, if you think about it, if you're in your formative years as a, as a toddler, um, an infant, a teenager, and for whatever reason, you know, there's abuse or neglect happening, you're not going to be feeling safe. Um, you're, you know, going to be experiencing probably some pretty painful emotions. And um, there's a, a brilliant psychotherapist, uh, Pete Walker. He, I can't remember if he's Canadian or American. I think he's Canadian. Um, he's passed away, but he wrote a beautiful book on how to recover from complex trauma. And um, it's not specifically about OCD, but in that book he does talk about OCD a little bit. And he puts forward the theory that um, 
when people become sort of driven by their thoughts and driven by doing, um, which I think are two characteristics of anxiety that we're doing and doing and thinking and thinking Mm. um, and not relaxing, it's a way of running away from emotions. Um, Because for some people, maybe there is a history of, of painful, unaddressed emotion. And so becoming fixated on thinking and mental rituals and, and, and doing and physical rituals and worrying and planning and, and worrying about planning and planning yeah. and perfectionism. <laughs> it's, it's a way to run away from your feelings, whether you realize that or not at the time. And, you know, I certainly look back um, on parts of my life and that rings very true for me. And so, yeah, and so to tie that back into this whole concept of safety, um, yeah, ultimately I think people with OCD, they don't feel safe in themselves, they don't feel safe uh, in the world, um, they perhaps they probably don't feel safe with other people and it's kind of manifesting um, in all these different ways. And and again, I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a, a real lack of self-love yeah. going on as well. Um, so yeah, all, all this, you know, if there is a role for childhood trauma, and I'm not saying that's the case for everyone who has OCD, but all these things we're talking about here, um, you know, are good reasons why you might refer to, uh, why you probably should refer to a psychotherapist um, and have a, a shared care approach and also um, in terms of treatments that we know work for OCD, um, the gold standard for probably the last 30 years um, has been uh, ERP, Exposure and Response Prevention Therapy, um, which is delivered by psychologists. Also, I I have a theory that uh, the way forward for OCD treatment and and treatment of um, probably other mental illnesses as well would be for the nutritionist and naturopath um, and the psychotherapist, the psychologist therapist to get together and uh, combine um, herbal medicine, nutritional medicine, um, stress reduction, self-compassion tools with the therapy and with the ERP therapy that the psychologist can deliver. And I think honestly, if we could do that and if we could make that the gold standard for um, OCD support, I think we would see a greater reduction in symptoms, um, you know, greater reduction of relapse. Um, I think we would just see greater rates of of success all around and people getting their lives back because it's, you know, it's it's not just cognitive stuff that's going on and the psychologists are brilliant at working with that, but there's biochemical stuff going on. There's social and emotional stuff going on. Um, there's a lot of stress response stuff going on. And, you know, if someone gets to the point like I did where they're housebound with OCD and they're kind of hysterical, um, I think that's where you need to go and first with the nutritional medicine and the herbal medicine and get that person off the ceiling before they can actually get into a psychologist's office. So this is my theory, you know, look after the nervous system, look after the endocrine system, uh, get rid of all the other horrible stuff that might be going on with their physical health, whether it's, you know, migraines or PMS or insomnia or, you know, whatever it may be. The classic things that we see in anxiety is often things like headaches and insomnia, digestive problems. Um, you know, reduce all that and just get the person, just help them calm down a little bit. Um 
get them feeling better, get them sleeping better, get them feeling a bit safer and happier and, and you know, get them adding some more good stuff into their life and then they're going to be able to get into the, the psychotherapist's office and then start the ERP therapy and the cognitive behavioural therapy and... Um, and then they're going to have a wonderful mental health toolbox. It's really interesting you mentioned the nu- nutritional status, and I don't know if she's concentrated specifically on OCD. I'm, I'm going to say not. I think she has done work on generalised anxiety disorder, and this is the work, of course, of um, Professor Julia Rucklidge in at Massey University. Uh, yes, I'm a big fan. Um, she, I actually have one of her papers open. Uh, now, Julia um, published a case study in 2009, which did not get as much attention as it should have. Um, so, yeah, 2009, Julia published successful treatment of um, OCD with a micronutrient formula following partial response to cognitive behavioral uh, therapy. This was in the Journal of Anxiety Disorders. 2009. Um, And yeah, I'm I'm just looking at the abstract of that. And yeah, essentially what happened was she had an 18-year-old male who had cognitive behavioral therapy for a year and sort of, yeah, shifted from having severe symptoms of OCD to moderate symptoms. Um, But after the therapy stopped, things deteriorated for him. Um, his OCD became severe again, he became very depressed and then he entered um, a trial where he was taking the micronutrient formula and he took that micronutrient formula for eight weeks. Um, Wow, that's quick. And to quote from the abstract, mood was stabilised, anxiety reduced, obsessions were in remission. The micronutrient treatment was then discontinued for eight weeks during which time his obsessions and anxiety worsened and his mood dropped. Reintroduction of the formula again improved the symptoms. This case illustrates the importance of considering the effects micronutrients have on mental illness. So, and actually, when I first came across, um, I think I came across that study around 2011, and I actually wrote to Julia Rutledge and, and just told her about my own experience of how you know nutritional and herbal medicine gave me my life back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I was kind of hoping she would study me, but of course she couldn't <laughs> because it was all sort of. Um, you know, retrospective at that point, but yeah. How do you best approach somebody that might present in your clinic and you go, hang on, what's going on here? Because sometimes they might not come in saying, hello, I have OCD and I'm here to see you. It might be something less obvious. Yeah. Well, um, now I'm trying to think, if I think about the things I've had people say to me, um, and if I think about how I would have you know, talked to someone back when I was a teenager if I'd had the opportunity. Um, so it could be, you know, either gender, any age. Mm. Um, I don't think we're, you know, looking at a particular demographic here. Um, but if they do have OCD, you can probably assume they've had it for a while because <laughs> we know as I said earlier, people tend to go suffer for 10 years before they first seek help. So, um I, as a practitioner, I would advise being very mindful of, for example, if your client comes in and is kind of making vague statements about um, anxiety, unwanted thoughts, um, delusions, thoughts that upset me, mental images that upset me, anything like that. And you might even hear a person just use the word obsessive. So they might not say, I have obsessive compulsive disorder, but um, I actually I had a case study client um, when I was 
um, still at college. And I remember in his initial consultation, he he used the phrase, I have quite an obsessive personality about five times in the space of 25 minutes. And uh, I said to him, do you have OCD? And he said, yeah, good guess. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think sometimes people might be trying to tell you something. Yeah. But, you know, again, think about the fact that a lot of these people probably do have a weight of shame hanging around their necks. So, yeah, if you're hearing anything like, oh, I'm anxious or I have anxiety, you know, which is pretty vague, mm. and we do hear that a lot these days, um, you know, I would maybe ask questions like, tell me how that is for you. And, you know, make it make it easier for them. So maybe questions and phrases like, um, are you having unwanted thoughts? Uh, are you having distressing, you know, pictures in your head? Um, uh, and possibly even questions like, uh, are you having thoughts that upset you because they're so um, opposite to who you actually are, you know? Um, or are you, are you having fears or, or worries about your loved ones? So those could be some good questions to ask. And then there is actually a tool, um, and I don't know if, I think it was, it was probably developed for psychotherapists, but it's probably a useful one to be aware of. Um, there is a, a scale, the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale, and it's known as the Y-Boc, so Y-B-O-C. Yeah, and that's useful for determining the presence and the severity and the type of symptoms in OCD. And if you Google YBOC, um, so it was Y hyphen BOC, you, you'll find that and you'll be able to download it um, online. Um, so again, perhaps more useful for a psychotherapist who's about to commence um, CBT or ERP therapy. But you know, if you're a natural health um, practitioner, it, it could help you as a practitioner and your client get clearer on um, what's going on, and you know, and it's probably going to be a huge relief, you know, for someone who's living with OCD. If as the practitioner, you can actually sit there and say, okay, so, um, I mean, I think most people with OCD know they have it, um, not always, but a lot of the time, and if you can sort of you know, bring that up in a compassionate and um, accepting way. And, you know, just just as we would be so comfortable with, you know, someone coming into our clinic room with a, a gluten intolerance or um, psoriasis or infertility, you know, why yeah. should OCD be any different? Yeah. So if you can just let them know, hey, you know, this is a health condition, you sit serious, um, I'm glad that you've come. And I can help you, yeah. and 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 maybe for if you're you know if you're interested in working in this area, have a read on OCD themes, you know, have a read on pedophilia OCD, magical thinking, harm OCD, existential OCD, um, relationship OCD, um, symmetry, um, religious scrupulosity. You know, these are all types of OCD themes, and then you know then you have that familiarity and. Uh, just, you know, if you do a bit of reading on that, it really does help to illustrate that the, the symptoms of OCD are really quite varied, um, you know, as varied as, as the people who have it. When you spoke earlier about referring to a psychotherapist, how do you choose a good one? How do you choose somebody that's competent? Um, well, I mean, aside from the, the obvious things like um, qualifications, qualifications and registration, yeah. um, I think the main thing to look for is you want someone who specifically says, you know, in their website, in their flyers, in their brochures, 
that they work with anxiety disorders and you want them to specifically mention OCD. Um, And even better if they're talking about ERP therapy. Um, Now, when I've looked around, because I've been trying to build up a, um, I've been working at building up a network of psychologists I can refer to, um, those are the things I look for, you know, and, and, you know, how much experience do you have Supporting people with OCD, you know, what do you use ERP and CBT, or do you use a combination of both, or one or the other? Um, and yeah, yeah, I guess and maybe just asking, you know, how and how long have you been working with people with OCD? And yeah, what about things like red flags? And indeed, I've got to ask the question. We covered it a little bit, but is there any specific questioning techniques or any other techniques that you might? employ to find out what it isn't, like they haven't got OCD? How would you discern OCD from other anxiety disorders? And indeed, as I said before, the red flags, what do you, what do you need to be careful of? Probably the compulsions are, you know, a classic um, feature of OCD. So, you know, there is generalised anxiety where people will worry about everything all the time and have a lot of anxious predictions. Um, but I guess what's quite unique to OCD is the intrusiveness of the thoughts and the fact that you often can have graphic mental images and then the associated compulsions. So I guess asking the person, you know, do you feel like you have to do something to make it right or to make those thoughts go away um, would be a good good tool. and if I think back to my own experience with my naturopath, I mean, gosh, she yeah, she had me fill out about three questionnaires mm. <laughs> um, before my first consultation. And, yeah, I mean, she asked me a lot of questions like, yeah, do you need to feel like, um, yeah, you, you had to do something to make things feel okay again? Um, you know, do you find that you spend a lot of time checking things or cleaning your environment or, you know, a lot of time on your own personal washing? Um, do certain you know people or places um, feel dirty to you? Uh, do you feel like you need to say your prayers over and over and over to get them right? Um, do you worry that you might have hurt someone? Do you worry that someone might hurt your family? So, yeah, questions like that. Yeah. Um, but then my, if I yeah, just thinking back to my own naturopath, she also asked me a lot of questions that I would say related to nervous health. So. She gave me a big checklist, and I, and I remember going through it and thinking, damn, how does this person know so much about me? Yeah. It, it was a huge <laughs> checklist of questions, and it, and it was things like, um, do you find it difficult to be in crowds? Um, do you feel that you startle excessively You know, if someone surprises you or says your name or, or if there's a loud noise? Um, oh, gosh, I should probably, I will have that questionnaire probably somewhere buried on a memory stick. I should probably go back and look at it. But, yeah. Well, and, maybe um, we can put these up on the FX Medicine website. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And also questions around sleep as well, I think, is a big one. Yeah, of course. Where can practitioners get more resources, both complementary, I guess, in nature or indeed orthodox in, in nature so that they can understand this form of anxiety disorder? Okay, so um, I will send you a bunch of links, Andrew, because um, oh, I've, for about 10 years now, or probably for about no, probably about seven or eight years, I've been collecting a bunch of um, research articles on OCD. So I do have a nice little collection of articles on um, 
serum mineral profiles in OCD, uh, oxidant status in OCD. Um, probably a big thing now, I know this doesn't really answer your question exactly, but a, a really important thing to know is that um, for the last probably 15 years, um, if not slightly longer, there's been a lot of research uh, done where they've used diffusion tensor imaging to look at the white matter yeah. um, in the brains of people affected by OCD and then you know compared with uh, white matter in, in the brains of people not affected by OCD. Um, so when we're talking about white matter, we're talking about nerve fibers and uh, myelin sheaths. And w- w- what's been found is that um, people uh, consistently across many studies, what's been found is that um, the amount of white matter is reduced um, or is abnormal. <clears throat> there are white matter deficits yeah. in the brains of people who have OCD, meaning that there are, um, as one researcher put it, there's less strong connections and, uh, and nerve fibers. And uh, the reason this is so fascinating to me is because my own naturopath had a theory about the link between problems with myelin and OCD. So um, we do, now I don't know if we know this for certain, I think it's speculative, but um, but there is some evidence for it. It would appear that omega-3 supports white matter integrity. Um, I know from my own experience and experiences of um, clients and people that I was in a support group with back in the day when I was early in my recovery, um, we all felt a lot better taking omega-3. Um, and for some of us, that was a lot of omega-3. Um, so what sort of dose? Also then, what sort of dose are you talking uh, Okay, I'm going to be completely honest here. Now, I'm normally pretty careful who I say this to because I don't want the general public to rush out and do this unsupervised because uh, that would not be safe. But for me, I was taking both flaxseed oil and fish oil um, for a number of years. And at one point, I was taking 10 grams of fish oil a day. Um, and I was generally taking two tablespoons of flaxseed oil a day separated. So that's high. Off the top of my, that's very high. That's yeah, high. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't always taking ten grams of fish oil a day. It was probably more around five six grams a day. Um, but now and then I would give myself a boost. And in the months leading up to um, when I hit that point where some of my major OCD fears just weren't there anymore, um, I had boosted up to 10 grams a day. Now, I was doing this under the supervision of a qualified naturopath yep. and um, I was looking after my liver. <laughs> I'd done a lot of liver work because that's a lot of hard work for the liver. But I can tell you that, yeah, I, I certainly was eating a lot more protein, yeah. uh, a lot more B12, B6, um, a lot more saturated fat. And yeah, long term, I, I also uh, took magnesium long term. Um, what else was I doing back then? Um, herbs for my liver, Nervine. I mean, I, I took Nervine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to be honest, I'd quite happily take Nervine for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I think Nervine is the best thing ever. Um, and I, I waited quite a while before I took the complex. Um, and I didn't really understand it at the time. Uh, my naturopath did explain to me, but I, I didn't understand it at the time with the level of understanding I had. But she warned me to be careful with the complex and uh, and that when I did start taking it that I had to go very slowly and that if I, you know, noticed um, that any symptoms got worse that I had to stop taking it. And yeah, so it was it was probably a solid year of really improving my diet and 
looking after my liver um, and really, you know, getting more essential fatty acids and more minerals um, before I then, you know, moved into taking B-complex as well. And actually something that frustrated me was when I began studying and I talked to a couple of my tutors, I actually had a couple of tutors say to me, you know, point blank, that is ridiculous, you shouldn't be taking that many supplements, you know, da 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 and you shouldn't be taking them long term. And um, fortunately, I, I had the confidence and, and I felt well enough at that point to just know this has helped me. And, um, you know, because sometimes when you're younger, you do take on board everything everybody else says. Yeah, but, um, so forth. I do wonder if, you know, if for people affected by not just OCD but mental health conditions, there is a role for mega dosing because historically, if we look at the work of Abram Hoffer and Carl Pfeiffer, um, who were medical doctors who pioneered, you know, um, nutrient therapy for mental illness, uh, they were quite keen on mega dosing. I think that's where the term mega dosing comes from, um, yeah. you know, high dose niacin for schizophrenia, for example, um, high doses of B12. So, yeah, so certainly, um, and we know that, you know, there is some research that shows um, mineral deficiencies uh, in the serum of people with OCD compared with the control group. That's very interesting. Um, so that that sort and, of goes along. Thank God we've got the the brilliant work of Julia to rely on here for, for actually an intervention type study or studies using these micronutrients and you know i guess there's a dose ranging there um the abram hoffer carl pfeiffer sort of approach i'm just so glad that you've been able to hook into their foundation if you like and use it for your own benefit and now be in a place where you can help others in the same sort of predicament yeah yeah well um i mean i hate there's probably still a lot that i don't know um i mean i look over the research and um, you know, they, they believe there's a role for um, alterations in the, the glutamatergic, dopaminergic, serotonergic pathways. Yeah. Um, you know, there's probably could be something going on. Yeah, with um, this could all be related to genetic variants. Um, but I think, I think as practitioners, yeah, the main thing to understand is, um, you know, see, so, you know, just see that person as a person who has an illness first and foremost, and help lift some of that shame. Let them know you can help them, and then, of course, you know, as holistic practitioners, we look at diet and lifestyle first. Because even if there are um, problems going on at genetic level, you know, cleaning up diet, diet and lifestyle first is going to have positive impacts um, on all of that. I mean, I've I've never had any genetic testing done myself. I've finally reached the point where I'm curious and yeah. I'm thinking about doing it. Um, I think there probably is something going on for me at a genetic level and there's enough research to suggest that um, genetics do play a role in the pathophysiology of OCD. But, you know, for me, um, those diet and lifestyle changes and, and the herbal medicine, um, you know, I'm a nutritionist, but I, I have to give a big shout out to herbal medicine because that, that all really helps. <laughs> You'll me. be back and, at college. And, <laughs> yeah, I, I know I will be eventually. I'll be upgrading to become a naturopath. But, you know, those things help me and, and I can't stress enough um, the stress reduction and and you know, filling up your life with good stuff because at the point where I I hit rock bottom for that second time, I had some pretty toxic people in my life. Yeah. Um, I had some pretty stressful stuff going on and on a day to day basis, you know, I wasn't filling up my my day with things that brought me joy. And so part of my O C D recovery was I bought a piano. 
Um, I got a pet cat, or actually she got me. She showed up on my doorstep. Um, I'm, I'm still convinced that that, uh, that cat was a gift from the universe. Um, I, you know, I, I distanced myself from toxic people. Yeah. Um, I stopped putting up with certain things. Um, I started putting myself first more, and I started laughing more. I started watching more stupid comedy, silly films, and, you know, so there's, I think there's a huge role for all of that and, and almost um, supporting the person affected by probably any form of illness, um, but especially one where there's been a history of sort of, yeah, sort of self, self-doubt self and lack of self-kindness, you yeah. know, support that person and, and falling in love with themselves and finding their, their talents and their gifts and the things that light them up inside. And I truly believe that all that is just as important as the pathology um, and the nutritional therapy and you know, um, in some ways, maybe it's more important yeah. Um, yeah. than the technical stuff that goes on in the lab. Francesca Eldridge, thank you so much for joining us on Ethics Medicine today and for taking us through. Obviously, it's something that has filled you with passion because of your own experiences, but now you have both the credentials and obviously the compassion to help your fellow patients, um, not just with this, but other in um, other uh, anxiety disorders as well. So thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Donoghue. Join us for our new podcast series, FX Omics. We'll be exploring the new technologies of integrative medicine, including genomics, metabolomics, the microbiome, and many more fields that are transforming healthcare. We're focusing on how they apply to practitioners and how we can incorporate them into our patient care. We aim to make these exciting and sometimes challenging fields relevant to you and your practice. Search for FX Omics on your favourite podcast platform and we look forward to your company.